Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.com howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. Money and kids. Do those two words stump you? What and how do you raise kids and talk about money? Did you grow up in a home where money was never talked about? Maybe you don't feel confident that you know much about money. Today's guest is Jolene Godfrey, and she is an innovator in financial education for children and families. And she's the author of several books, and her latest is Raising Financially Fit Kids. And Jolene and I are going to discuss how you can raise your kids and teach them about money so that they can thrive when they're adults. Jolene, hello and welcome to my show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So I'm very passionate about this topic um, I'm with my own backstory and growing up and really having a lot of shame around money. And so in my 20s, I spent just a ton of time learning and realizing that if you can become financially literate and then you imp and you actually practice using those money tools, it can be life changing. And tell me where I'm wrong with that, Jolene. <laughs> actually, it can. And I have to say that I, I'm, it's important to know I'm trained as a social worker. I'm not trained as a financial person. Mm -hmm. And yet I would tell you that the adventure and the journey I'm on with families is more fun than I could have going to Disneyland. And I really mean that. And part of the reason I say that to kind of pick up on what you were just saying is for a long time, I talked about financial education as economic self-defense. It was a way to keep your children safe to give them skills they needed to deal with a, a growing, complex economy. The shift for me just in the last year has been to say, yeah, it is economic self-defense, but it is also a way to ha give kids the skills they need to be proactive in a world in which we are facing one disruption after another. Mm -hmm. So your kids are going to be those children, that generation, who will literally be looking at businesses that are happening on Mars. They will be the kids who are looking at new kinds of energies. They will be the kids who are looking at different agricultural systems. And so in order to participate in a more entrepreneurial world, they're going to need skills to really be on the forefront of those changes. And, you know, God, it's like seeing science fiction come to life. Those children have the most extraordinary opportunities and these skills will help them participate in a, in a real vital way. So you can see I feel passionately about this. And I love that because it's a really, it's an empowerment thing instead of approaching money as fear or having shame where you don't want to talk about it. Right. And that is the difference. I think, um, you know, when I first got into this, this whole world of financial education, in fact, it started, interestingly enough, back, you may recall, in the Clinton years, it was... Financial education was actually targeted mostly at 
lower income families. And the idea was to move from welfare to work. And this was one of the strategies. And so it wasn't actually a topic that anybody thought of unless they thought of it in terms of helping people out of poverty. And that usually meant getting people out of credit doldrums. And and it always had to do with some dark, deep, dreadful part of your life. And now what we're seeing is, oh, no. I mean, when you think about what's happening with Kickstarter and, and even Kiva, any of the crowdsourcing things where you're seeing a new generation take control and be empowered to start their own businesses, what you know is they have to understand due diligence. They have to understand what it means to invest. They have to understand different business models. Well, you don't get that stuff by osmosis. You get it when you are exposed to different ideas and people are teaching you and mentoring you so that you can use those tools for yourself to participate in the economy in kind of a fun way. I love that. And, and go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, you just have to jump in and shut me up because you can tell I can go on on this. But what I was going to say, what is also very cool that we're seeing is that more and more families are starting with their kids at very young ages. It used to be that I would get calls from families, you know, and the kids were 16, 17, and already showing signs of being huge consumers or not understanding the value of a dollar and parents would be tearing out their hair. Now what's going on is that they're saying, wait a minute, this is a developmental task or a developmental skill like, you know, learning to talk and walk and potty train. And so if we get kids started in a gentle way early on, they grow up thinking it's normal to be financially fluent. It's not something I have to learn that's hard and ugly later in life. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And that's one of the things that we've done in our household is, you know, we talk about money a lot and we talk about how it can be a tool and the choices. And then we've given them allowance. And I've never thought of it in this way until I was reading your book, Raising Financially Fit Kids. But you use this, and it's a great line. I'm going to talk about it a lot now. But that allowance is a tool for teaching children how to manage money. And I love that. I just, you know, because long time ago, I don't know where I learned this, but it was I, when I was going through the first raising of children, my bonus kids, I was looking into stuff because I wanted to teach the kids about how to manage money. And, right. um, and I was trying to, do we tie it to chores? Do we not? And somewhere along the line, I have no idea where, it was recommended not to tie it to chores. And I think that's similar to what you say, isn't it? Right. What we do, and you know, you may recall this is in the book there somewhere. What I say is, It's not that I don't want kids to learn how to earn. I do. That's critical. But if you think about the allowance as the the practice money and you put that as a line item and then underneath you put uh, earnings, then anything they make gets factored into their budget. And then there's that third category I talk of, which is windfall. And it's often windfall that makes every allowance I've ever seen totally irrelevant. So, you know, the kid has their... $5 a week allowance, which is, you know, typically way too low anyway. They have the $5 a week and then grandma comes along, gives them $25 and they think, well, heck, I don't need an allowance for five weeks. I'm in good shape. And it just undermines the teaching you're trying to do. So instead, what we say is, look, let's just lay it out because honestly, eight-year-olds understand income. Mm -hmm. And they, if you put it out there for a month, I wouldn't, For an eight-year-old, I wouldn't do it for a year, but they get what it means to have four weeks of income. And, you know, if in fact they're also doing some something in the family for which they can earn some money, that goes into their budget too. But yes, I'm I believe that there are lots of things in families that you do because you're a family citizen, not because you're hired help. Now The rule of thumb I have on this, though, is that you can't pay a kid to clean their own closet, but you can certainly pay them to clean yours. Mm -hmm. Anything you pay a third party for, that's fair game for that kid. Um, But it's, you know, to set the table, to clean their own room, nah, even to take care of the dog. If everybody agrees there's going to be a dog, then everybody has to share in the responsibility for the dog. Um, But... 
Yeah, I I guess the difference for me with allowances is that I see that as an income statement, whether they're eight years old or 18 years old or 28 or 48 for that matter. Um, okay, so Jolene, you're now scaring my listeners because they're like income statement and they're constricting when they hear that. What do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. So particularly when you've got whether it's an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 16 or 18-year-old, part of what I'm doing by saying it's an income statement is teaching language. So if you think about financial education as just another language, it's fluency. So just as, you know, I work very hard to practice and get better at Spanish and French, finance is another language. And so when I say to an eight-year-old, here, let's work on the income statement, what I know about that is that by the time they're 12, that won't seem like a strange concept. That will be just what they do. You know, 12, I have an income statement. At 16, I have an income statement. It is giving them language so that they can try those words out in their mouth and in their in their head, and we're practicing. Because the one thing I think that we forget is that whether it's learning to play the clarinet or play a great game of tennis, it takes years to master those things. Mm -hmm. And I think giving kids plenty of time to practice these skills, whether it's learning the language or balancing their allowance budget or their income budget, if you will, um, you know, I think it's great to start them early and let them screw it up as often as possible because by the time they're 16, they'll have it down. By the time they're 18 and going off to, you know, whether it's independence or school, they will have the skills they need. Most families think, well, I don't have to worry about that until my kid is 18. Well, geez, Louise, it's like saying I don't have to potty train them until they're 16. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, you'd never do that. And so it's just give the family plenty of time to practice in lots of different ways, and they'll be pretty competent by the time they're ready to be independent. Um, and, and I know this to be true, but I also know families put it off because they are scared of the, the information they think children will have. And one thing I'm really clear on is this isn't about... Um, revealing the family books prematurely. One of the things I, I feel strongly is you don't give transparency before readiness. Mm -hmm. And readiness is about having those skills mastered. But as kids are ready, as they understand, gee, how does a utility bill fit into the family budget and whether or not we can go on vacation? Then they have a stake in the conversation. You know, if it's, look, kids, if, you're gonna, if we're going to go on vacation to where you want to go, we need to save X amount or X percent out of the family budget. And if they understand the family budget, it's like, oh, okay, we get it. Mm -hmm. I've had too much coffee this morning. I so apologize. No <laughs> need to apologize. No, I, and I, the, the idea of the income statement, I love that because um, you're, what's happening is that the adults, when you first said it, that were listening to my show, right, and they may have twinged, if you if you grow up with that language, it's not going to have that fearful probably meaning to it because it's like, well, this is part of the conversations that I've had since I was six years old or eight years old. So That's right. It's just normal. And it's just normal. And, and now you have a language. And you may not – one of the things I say about compound interest, for example, is that I don't care if a kid understands compound interest when they're nine, but I want them to be able to spell it. Because if they can spell it at nine, that means they're hearing the phrase. And so that by the time they're 12, they'll kind of grasp what I'm talking about. And by the time they're 14, they can calculate it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of developmentally, if they can just hear the words, learn to spell them, and understand what they mean, and then practice them, boy, they've just got now a mastery of a language that we all would like to have. So, Jolene, do you think that sometimes people make financial mistakes because of fear? Because they don't I know? I think it's primarily. I think it's almost all. I, it's, it's partly, you know, when you don't know what you don't know, your fantasy life goes bonkers. And you make up things to be either way better than, you, than they really are or way worse. And, you know, depending on how you view the world, you will exaggerate, you know, I've got plenty of money. I don't have to worry about this until you're really in trouble. 
or I don't have any money, I can't do anything, and that constricts you in a different way. Um, it's funny, money is one of the great, great reality testers. And until you kind of really look at what's really there, you don't make good, solid decisions for yourself. And I think the tools or the skills we're talking about are aimed at giving kids a pretty grounded approach to their lives, which, you know, it's what we want for our kids. And it's concrete because these are dollars, yeah. right? I mean, this is, these That's are right. facts. They're not That's opinions, right. they're facts. They're facts. They're facts. And the other piece of that, you know, families will say to me all the time, oh, I don't want my kids to know. You know, I don't want them to worry about it. That's what they'll say. I don't want kids to worry about money. Well, the fact is those kids are being given an invisible allowance already. You're subsidizing your children no matter what you do with them, and, and it's just invisible to them. So they don't have access to knowledge that they could use to be learning about how to take care of themselves down the road. And the more concrete and real you are, the easier it is for them to grasp kind of the parameters of their lives and to make really good, sound choices. You know, we have this one... Um, activity we do with kids all the time in the in the early stages. And in it, you have to make some choices about lifestyle um, choices for living and what you drive and what you wear. And then you choose which um, what your career is going to be. And then you find out how much money goes with that career. Invariably, what we see is the young woman who wants to be an actress um, and the average income for, you know, a beginning actress is something like $6,000 a year. So that child is the same one who wants the SUV to drive around in. And, you know, when you see that they don't know how to match up lifestyle choices with uh, career, you see we've got a ways to go in terms of helping them get grounded in their lives. So with with the allowance... Um... There's a couple things that you say that I just resonated, and I've now reading your book. I'm going to have a meeting with my 13 year old tomorrow um, <laughs> because we need to. We've been doing allowance, and we've been doing a lot of the things that you recommend. But she's now going to be going into eighth grade, right? We we things have been kind of on automatic for a while, and we need to kind of tweak things. Um, right. We don't need to blow it all up and start over, but we need to tweak things. But so the lines that I'm going to be using is that with tomorrow with my daughter is this is a tool for teaching you how to manage your money. And the function of a family is to love, live and work together. There are obligations yeah. and privileges that must be shared. Love that. Yeah. Well, I think it is, you know, it used to be way back. You had kids because they were kind of workhorses in a family. They were economic advantages. These days, honestly, children are an economic drain. They're not <laughs> what you use to, to bring money in. And so we have, as a culture, probably around the world, had to rethink the purpose of the family. We've gone from family as economic um, unit to family as lifestyle. You know, this is a choice we're making to be a family. So why are we doing this? What is a higher purpose? And one of the things we see with kids and money is it's not enough to say to a child, you know, we want you to be frugal. We want you to be thoughtful about how you're spending your money. Because their next question is how come? Why? What, what's the bigger vision here? And I think it's true with families. Unless families have a purpose and a vision in the same way good companies do, then the kids don't have a good reason to come on board. I mean, one of the, the equivalents or one of the metaphors I use all the time is that the best companies in the world, and I think of Pixar and Apple and Cisco, those companies spend enormous amount of time being clear about their vision and investing in their human capital. And they do that because they know if they put time, intention, and money into their human capital, which are their people, they will be excellent, thoughtful, on the leading edge. They'll do great things. And what we say to families now is if you want to be a great family, you need to put time and attention into to developing your family and being clear about what your purpose is. Um, and, you know, just getting kids off to college is no longer enough. It's a great goal, but it's not a purpose. 
mm-hmm. because we're now living so long and there are so many ways that families can leverage one another's skills and talents and and knowledge that if we band together, boy, what a powerful unit we can be as a family. So Jolene, the other thing I can imagine my listeners thinking right now is the time. We're overwhelmed. Mm. We're busy. How much time will this take? Oh my gosh. Now we're getting into serious conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in fairness, what I will say is I actually, so this allows me a quick rant. I think Investing in your family, investing time in your family is the best gift you can give a child. And one of the things I've been very mindful of over the last decade is the extent to which the world allows us to distract from family in lots of different ways. So, for example, you know, if you've got a kid who's playing soccer or football or any organized sport, that completely trumps family time. You know, you don't do family dinner if it gets in the way of a soccer practice or a swim meet practice. And, you know, it used to be that sports were used as a way to help kids learn leadership and team building and all of that. It is now such a big business. I mean, children's sports must be putting money in somebody's pocket somewhere because we have gotten very serious about it and it just takes up this enormous amount of time. So one of the things I say to families is, look, it's back to deciding what your values are as a family and where you want to put your time because time is value. And you just make choices. You want kids to be financially fluent or you want them to be spending all of their time, you know, outside the house doing something else. And, you know, you can modify those choices in any way you want, but just know you are making a choice. Well, because I think sometimes, you know, when I talk with parents, they'll say, oh, well, we're doing all these different activities because of the college application. And, and I, right. you know, and I've been a part of higher ed and I know that, that I was like, well, that's actually not going to make a difference. Right. Um, right. So, right. And, the, you know, it may have made a difference a decade ago, but now it's, you know, there's so many kids trying to get into school. It's more like the lottery. So... <laughs> It's it's not as you're right. It isn't as effective as they think it is. And but the kid who can go in and make a case for this is who I am, what's important to me, what I know. Um, those are kids who are getting into school. I mean, I've I have been really struck over the last I don't know five or six years with the kids who come back to me and say, you know, we because of the kind of conversation I was able to have because of the kind of essay. I was able to do about what's important to me and and not just about money, but what's important to me in my family. That's getting the attention of colleges all over the world. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I think you can use that in any number of ways. You know, the other thing I would say is lots of, of parents will say to me, listen, I don't understand my own finances, so how am I going to teach my kid anything? You know, and that's real. What's interesting, and I try to tell people is, A, you shouldn't beat yourself up because prior to really the early 90s, we didn't actually have to know as much about money. You know, prior to our ability to actually buy a stock online, which is what Chuck Schwab gave us, Mm -hmm. everything was much more regulated. So you didn't actually have to know as much as you know today. So Today's parent really isn't equipped. And what I say is this is such a great opportunity to learn with kids rather than think you have to be their, you know, financial expert and teach them. So it's, it, it's okay if you make mistakes or if you don't have all the answers as a parent. Not only is it okay, it's more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I mean, learning together is discovering new things all the time and making mistakes and then making it right. And, you know, we, ha- we have this summer program, Camp Startup, um, and it's a 12-day residential camp. And in the course of it, these teenagers put together, for the most part, their first business plan. And I get really excited about seeing business plans that have been really screwed up because what we say to them is, look, those stakes are so low to do a bad first business plan when you're a teenager, that by the time you've practiced this three or four times and you're 25, you're going to have it down. But unfortunately, most people do their first business plan when they're 40, when the stakes are much higher. Mm -hmm. 
And so this business of using mistakes as part of the learning process, as part of the creativity process, frankly, um, is what I find exciting. I mean, we just started an, another new program that uh, I'm embarrassed to say we just made up, but it's called Learning Labs for Financial Creatives. And I kept listening to people who I think of as incredibly smart, but they would say to me, you know, I just, I hate opening my bank statement. I don't look at my financial advisor's report. I just can't bear it because I don't want anything really to do with money. It just doesn't really matter to me. And I would think, how do I put together this thing of these smart people with the responsibilities I know they have? And so I wrote this little blog that basically said, you know, I think if you self-identify as a creative person, you think that you're not, you don't have an aptitude for the financial language. And so I think it has everything to do with how we teach people about money and its relationship to creativity. And so we created this whole new program that begins to connect creativity and money in a way that allows people to find it a little bit more accessible. But, you know, I think we're so primitive in our approach to money and how we teach it Mm -hmm. that we've made it far too hard for far too many people. Well, it just seems to be like, I know my husband, when he was growing up, there was no discussion about money. It was... The, the, the message was is that we need to be very restrictive. His dad was an engineer at Lockheed, right? And we have this much money. Um, but that was pretty much the extent. And, right. um, you know, and then I grew up with a lot of shame about money. But as I was learning in my 20s, in the early 90s, about money and realizing that if you talk about it in a manner and um, with people that have earned the, um, earned the right to hear this, who mm-hmm. have who, who you can trust, you can learn a great deal. And there's a lot of information and there's not one path. That's what I found. There's, right. there's many different ways. And then, but it's, I love how you put in knowing your money values because that's important when you guide and make decisions. Yes. I mean, we have a chart in the book in which you put in, you know, moms, dads, grandmas, mm-hmm. everybody. And you see immediately that if one member of the family thinks, Carpe diem, seize the day, live your life in the moment, and somebody else says, no, no, we must save her a rainy day. You can see if there's not a real conversation about how those values conflict, then you're going to have a a very great deal of tension in the family around savings plans, for example. You know, one person's going to say, oh, what are we saving for? I want to live for today. And the other one's going to say, oh, no, 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 we must be saving for that rainy day. And you know, it's, it's facilitating those conflicting values that allows us to find some common language and some common vision around money in families. And it doesn't mean everybody's going to be happy all the time, but it does mean that the kind of fractious arguments that come up in families that cause so much tension around money, I think, get easier and get diffused because we begin to see, no, we're not really talking about money. We're talking about what's important to us in our lives. And I think that's the shift we're going to see over the next decade as people get more sophisticated about how do we talk about what's important and see how money helps us reflect that one way or another in the choices we make. And, and going back to the time, it, you know, I think of parenting as like gardening. You know, you're planting seeds and you never quite know it's and I think you even referenced this in the fact that it's not going to be just a lecture, right? It's going to be many right. conversations over the years that are going to shape this. And so, so <laughs> this came to me actually in a flash one day. I was giving a talk um, somewhere and for, I don't know, it's got to be probably the 200th time. These Several people came up to me afterwards and, and each of them would say to me, you know, my mother always used to say, or my grandfather always t- used to tell me. And suddenly I realized what those people were telling me were the stories of what their family members used to nag them about when they were children. And then I realized nagging, of course, is just marketing 101. It's repeat, 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 repeat. <laughs> and when you think about what your parents always said to you, it is the same message over and over. And often they were financial messages in one way or another. And I realized that it takes that long 
for those messages to repeat it, to be repeated, to become kind of evolve into character. And I think what is most difficult about parenting is that you take this leap of faith with your children and you you kind of commit to these values and these messages and you see no evidence that they are being absorbed at all until they show up to somebody like me and they will say, and my mother always used to say. And so what I now say to families is, look, your job is to nag. You can't feel guilty about it. You can't feel bad about it. That's just your job. And so you just go for it. Nag, 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 because that's financial education 101. You're just marketing those financial messages. Uh, But it's hard. It means, you know, you play the bad guy role all too often. It means you see no evidence that there's any uh, impact until they're 25, 35, 45. I mean, I, I appreciate my mother today so much more than I did when I was 25 years old. It's just the cost of being a parent. So I call that, um, when we have this expectation of the immediacy, I call that a transactional relationship, right? You go to Starbucks right. and you right. put in your order, you pay your money, you get your coffee. And we, when we parents, <laughs> or we brilliant. do a lot of things, we want yes. transactional relationships. It's like, well, I've told you, you know, to tr- turn off the lights because this is affecting our electric bill. And, right. And the, the light bulbs are still on. Right. And, right. But it's it's not transactional. It's it's an investment. It's a long term investment. And that's you just right. keep repeating it. That's right. Actually, that's brilliant. I think you're right on the money about that. And you should you should stick with that because that's exactly the right message. Um, and, and you're right, you know, the transactional, I know that I'm not working with the right family. In fact, when a family calls me up and says, you know, could you come see my, my family and, you know, do an afternoon and teach them about money? And my response is always, no, actually I can't, you know, if, if you're going to work with us, then you need to kind of just buy into the fact that this is a process. It's not an event. And it's going to take time, and we're and you better like me because you're going to be around me for a really long time. And I think that's more honest, though. I think to pretend that anybody can develop financial fluency or comfort with money in a weekend or a month is bogus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's why people, you know, they buy a book or they watch a TV show or a video series or whatever. And they finish it, and they think, well, I'm not any different. Well, no, you're not going to be any different. you got to really commit to this over a period of time. And slowly, slowly, you learn new words, you learn new ideas, you get more comfortable with the conversation. And it, it evolves over time. It doesn't, it doesn't evolve by osmosis. I mean, I think that's the other, <laughs> uh, the other thing. Families will say, oh, my kids will get it. I'm not worried about that. They're smart kids. They'll pick it up. Well, you know, I don't just pick up French by just hanging out with French people. I'd like to, but it's not quite that easy. And so you got to be a little bit more intentional about it. Yeah, and it, you, it's you have to practice. I mean, you said that earlier. Yeah, you practice, and you practice. It's practice. Yep, you okay. practice, and and it is why I love the allowance. I actually, and you know, I will also say there is this element of creativity and imagination that can go into it. So, for example, um, it's not that I I take all the joy out of childhood with allowances. So, for example, we have kids, um, two little boys who have a treehouse in their backyard. Well, we make sure we factor that treehouse into their budget somehow because they're way more interested about what it's going to cost to put a roof on that treehouse then they are, you know, how much am I going to be able to spend on, on lunch next week? And so when you find the things that are relevant to a child and can factor those into, the, into their budget or their income statement, now you've got their attention. I mean, we did an, another program with another family in which we were looking at what, what it costs to feed a beluga whale for a day and for a year. <laughs> You know, we went to the Georgia Aquarium. We spent time there. These kids really understood a balance sheet when they finished because they understood exactly what it cost to feed that whale, and they also began to understand where that money was coming from. So that later when I began to talk about balance sheets for their own personal lives, 
they had a context. They had a construct that made sense because, geez, they'd done this for the whales or the treehouse or whatever is relevant in their lives. I love that. I mean, great kids with horses. That's oh, another one. Yes. You know, that's so expensive. And most parents shield their children from knowing anything about the cost of horses. Well, by golly, when you put the budget for the stable and the care of the horse and the feeding of the horse and the lessons in front of them, you know, their eyes get wide, but they also get wiser. Now they get it. Oh, so that's what's going on here. So there are lots of ways to engage children that really speak to them, I think. So going back to time and the allowance bit, one of the things that we do, we, you know, we, 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 we have our family dinners. That's always been an important value for us. And it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. It does make, you know, sometimes our schedules do get crazy, but you know, sure. we generally have majority and we have some good conversations and sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's family values or whatever. And, um, so can, can we sprinkle this money topic throughout our lives or even in the cars talking or, you know, if you go on hikes, like, so it doesn't always have to be a sit down formal like what I'm going to do tomorrow is going to be more of a sit down, formal, face to face. Let's kind of write some sure. stuff out. But can it be integrated and sprinkled throughout just our regular family lives? I I think that's probably the only way it gets done. I think you know it's back to this notion of repeat, repeat, repeat. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're going to sound like a nag, but you know that's your job. That said, I. These days, I'm also encouraging families to do family meetings. Mm-hmm. And you, you have meetings for any board that you're on, any nonprofit you're part of, for companies. And I think one of the things we're seeing that leaders do in families more and more is really say, look, let's have a family meeting. Now, maybe that's only once a month, or maybe it's even only four times a, a year. I don't care what it is, but instituting the notion that a family meeting where you come together to reconnect on, you know, what's important to us, where are we spending our time and money, what are we doing together, where are we going, it's just what you do when you have goals and you want to make something happen. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of, again, moving away from the notion that family happens by accident. It actually doesn't. It It happens because people like you are doing exactly what you're doing. You're sitting down and being quite thoughtful about, you know, what's the outcome that I want? What's important here? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the family meeting, I think we're going to see more and more be much more normal in more families. And then as far as like allowance and uh, okay, so your book Raising Financially Fit Kids is great because for those listeners, um, Jolene has it bracketed towards ages. So you can, you know, read a section if you have a five to eight year old and understand right. their development and stuff. And it's really broken down. And then you have your 10 steps or 10, um, 10 skills, 10 skills. And it's every, yeah. every time it changes, um, and yep. for the different age groups. Now, at what point does, is it okay to go from like a weekly allowance to a monthly? Because that can also just be a, redu- I mean, I suck Jolene at month at weekly allowances. I forget all the time. Of you know. course. Of course. And, you know, you're a busy woman. You don't have a lot of time. You know, it's interesting. What we see is it's such, it's so kid dependent. We see kids who are ready for that monthly allowance when they're, you know, 10 and 11. And we see other kids who aren't quite ready when they're 13 or 14. But the goal is exactly that. What you want is to help them move from, you know, you micromanaging every minute and every week to they're getting kind of a longer perspective and being able to manage first by the month and then by the quarter and then by the year. I mean, the goal is to go to the point where when they are seniors in high school, they are managing their annual budget, income and outgo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they start practicing that when they're 12 and 13, by the time they're 16, 17, 18, they've got it down. Mm -hmm. But they do need practice early on. Um, now, I, I, every time I say that, I think, I know there are people listening who think, oh, too late for me, my kid's already <laughs> 16, I can't do anything. And I catch myself and I say, it is never too late, any more than it's ever too late to learn a new language. I, I know that when I was working in Chile and I needed to learn 
Spanish quickly, I went and got myself into an immersion Spanish language class. Mm -hmm. Same thing for a 16-year-old with money. You have to be a little more aggressive, a little more intentional. It's got to work a little faster. Um, But I'm always careful to say, look, just because you didn't start when they were 10 doesn't mean that you're off the hook now. All the more important. Um, So I, I do think it is, you're right, the maps I have in that book are kind of under ideal conditions, you start and you kind of just do incrementally a little bit more each year, and it's a, it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do have a 17-year-old and, you know, it's now, now they're asking for money all the time for gas for the car mm-hmm. or for another date or whatever it is, you know, now is the moment. It's going to be a lot easier when they're 17 to get aggressive than it is when they're 25 or 23 and leaving college. Um, so I always feel like I need to say to families, look, sooner is better, whatever that sooner is, because, you know, I see families whose so-called children are in their 30s and 40s and haven't mastered the management of their income. And then it gets really hard. And that's, that's a great point. So thank you for um, pointing that out for the listeners who are going, oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, and... And it's important because we are seeing at this point, and you must see this too, the the problem of the subsidy of adult children mm-hmm. that has emerged over the last decade or so. Now, part of that is because we saw unemployment for young people just soar to outrageous places. It's been very hard for young people to find work because people are living longer, they're retiring later, they're just, and, and more things are, frankly, automated. So there just aren't the entry-level jobs there used to be. So parents are stepping in and helping along at a much later and bigger way than, than they used to. But that's not helping families either, and it's putting families under extraordinary stress. So again, what we're helping families think about is how do you help kids think about creating wealth earlier and then manage whatever income they have in a more effective way. And I want to go back to something you said earlier, because this is an important point, but when you talked about the different kinds of income for a child allowance, earnings and windfalls, you also in your book talk about that regardless of where the income comes from, there are still like you still put money into savings and why that's so important, even in the case of a windfall. Can you talk about that for my listeners? Yeah. You know, I have to admit that this came a little bit from my own experience. I remember the first time I got my first income tax return as a, I don't know, I must have been 18 or 19. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so great. I got this pot of money out of the sky and here's where I'm going to spend it. And, you know, we all do that. I, I can't imagine there's anybody listening who hasn't at some point just said, oh, yes, excellent, I'm taking this money and I'm going to Vegas. And that's all well and good. But what we're trying to do with kids is help them be more grounded about what that income is. The fact that, it, A, it is income, and, B, that if you begin to develop a notion that there is money that is suspended from responsibility, it's very easy to get into habits that are pretty dangerous, particularly these days when, you know, I think families and next generation people are thinking more carefully about how we steward our money because, you know, we don't have pensions the way we used to. And in fact, you got to think about what it means to live long. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do you think about all forms of income and where do they go in terms of spending, saving, giving, emergencies. I mean, it used to be that I didn't think about emergencies for kids. And then I thought, that's crazy. When you look at what happens with extreme weather around the country, you see families just being changed immediately. Well, what does it mean that you've put aside some money for emergencies? You're a little bit safer then. And we don't think there's anything wrong with beginning to introduce that idea to kids early on. Um, And I think, you know, I think early on we talk about saving, giving, wait, yeah, saving, spending, sharing is how we usually talk about it. And those are wonderful categories. But as soon as they master those, you want to, you know, increase their 
their language and their developmental awareness a little more, and now you begin to add other things in there. You know, what are you going to do for the long term? How do we save this? How do we create wealth? And all of those languages may seem foreign in the beginning, but they get normal pretty quickly. Oh, okay, so some of the obstacles that I've personally had because we have we've had these different piggy banks with the different categories, and we've mm-hmm. been doing it since my kids have been in kindergarten, is that you know one is the weekly stomp of me forgetting, and then um, and then I have to go back and remember how many weeks that I hadn't paid them, and we go through that not having the cash on hand. Right. right. So I want to automate this process, Jolene. What do you think about that? <laughs> Well, if you want an automated process, I think that's fine. I mean, if you can put this on your Quicken or some other, I mean, Mint or whatever, and put it on one of those and it reminds you, that's that's just ducky. But I must tell you, I have yet to see an app that works for most kids. Mm -hmm. And it's because this is such a face-to-face process. Now, there is another way to get around what you're talking about. I don't know that you absolutely have to have cash on hand. I think if you have a chart on the refrigerator door that you get that gets filled in every few days on, okay, what was the income and how much is it and what was spent? Now, remember, if you go remember and look at the book, I don't think that you have to, particularly early on, you don't have to have kids um, accounting for every single penny they they spend, you want to decide a few categories that they can keep track of. But I really think that there is as much value in having this visually as a chart on a refrigerator door as it is almost anything else because, you know, you can figure out all kinds of ways to make sure the money gets covered in one way or another. It's not necessarily about putting cash in their hands. It's about helping them make an accounting of the money coming in and out. And I think that's the difference. I think families get kind of stuck by this notion that, oh, I forgot to give them the money. Well, it's not really about the money. It's about keeping track of spending and income. Mm -hmm. So you might just try that. I like that. Yeah. You know, we do do that because my kids also have a clothing allowance. And yeah. so they don't really have cash on hand because I still go with them, but they each have their right. own Quicken account and they're responsible for putting in the receipts afterwards for making sure they know how much money they have available to go shop with. And then I have to just learn how to zip it when I'm at the store because <laughs> because I'm like, really? But I go, okay, this is the purpose of this, right? <laughs> Buy something, right. waste a lot of money or waste your money and have regrets later. But this is this is the whole purpose of this clothing. That's allowance. right. And, That's uh, brilliant. And, and Brilliant. So, you get an A plus. That's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, but I do. I have this little self-talk while I'm in the, you know, the stalls of Forever 21 going, really? Oh, uh, yes. But, yes. I, you know, and I, and I let that part go. The allowance bit was a bit more of a tussle because I've got to get the money yeah. to the bank. And then, you know, it's like right. this on and ongoing thing. So maybe we can automate some of the banking stuff where yes. I can just send the savings or they can. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can just write, write them a check and they can bike actually, to the, exactly. to the bank. Exactly. Yeah. I think that, you know, and the other thing that happens is parents get bullied by their children, mm-hmm. and then you don't know what's going on. So it is some kid who says, well, Mom, you haven't paid me for the last three weeks, and you can't remember if you did or not. But, you know, they keep at you long enough, and you'll buy whatever they say. And so it's really not about the cash. It's about keeping track. And and whatever way you can do that, whether it is online or on the refrigerator, whatever's going to work for you. This isn't about what works for them. It's what works for you. Okay. And then I noticed you made a comment in your book about, because I've even thought, I was like, oh, maybe I could get like a credit card or, you know, a cash card where then she can have the money for the clothing allowance. But you actually say you recommend against that from what I read? Well, I'm cautious about it at least. Um, We have a whole um, approach to teaching kids about credit. And mainly it's about helping them understand the world of fees and how people make money off them. And everybody out there is trying to get kids to use one card or another. I mean, there's a story in the book about a young woman... um, 
who, you know, freshman in college, she gets off to college, goes to the Gap to buy something, and, and I'm not picking on the Gap because I don't think the Gap is the worst of them by a long shot. But, you know, she's ready to check out, and the the person behind the counter says, um, well, do you want do you want a credit card? Are you sure you want? Don't really. You want a credit card. Honest. You meet. Now, it happens, this kid is pretty knowledgeable. We'd actually been working with her for a while. And she came back and she said, you know, it was so hard. I felt like, you know, he must know something or, you know, he was pressing so hard. I really should just give in. But she said, I didn't. And that was a good financial decision. But she could not have made that financial decision unless she'd had some knowledge about what the fee would mean to A, her credit rating, and be the extra cost for the piece of clothing. So it's not that I'm against cards. I think they have their place and they're important in whatever plan you're doing in the family. But I am careful to say, and we have to teach kids what that's all about and where the fees come in, because that's one of those invisible costs or hidden costs that, you know, we we think there's, oh, it's just so much more convenient. Well, it is, but until they understand hidden costs, you probably don't want to use it too liberally. And so what do you recommend in the in the area for the spending for their kid for the kids, right? Like my daughter's gonna be going into eighth grade, she needs some spending money. So what would you recommend in terms of how to get her cash? Is it using an ATM card? Is it just giving yeah. her cash? I I think it's a combination of cash and smaller amounts. I think giving kids you know, too big a wallet full of cash is dangerous. Um, I think uh, an ATM card that, you know, has security safeguards and doesn't have access to too much on it is another way to go about it. The the main thing is you want boundaries, you want limits, Mm -hmm. and you want to be able to see, you know, it needs to be transparent and open so you can both see what's going on with it. you know, the, the one thing I will say I have a little trouble with is lots of, particularly private schools, have accounts where, you know, it's convenient for parent and child in school. They go into the bookstore and they charge on that account. Mm-hmm. But it's then the, the invoice just goes to the parents. The parents pay for it. The kids have no sense of what they're charging. Mm-hmm. And so that lack of transparency, I think, kind of reinforces, oh, this is just magic. You know, somehow I buy stuff and magically it will get paid. And that's what we're trying to move away from, the magic. Yeah, and I guess that's where I've been stuck because, you know, with saying we have to have cash because I want my kids to see the cash, right? But then we we have an example with the clothing allowance where they're using a ledger, essentially, and they know how much money that they have. So maybe I can still automatically deposit into their bank their their monthly allowance because then I don't have to remember and then they know that they have this, and then they will be responsible for withdrawing. We're gonna to to, we're gonna work on this one and figure out a system <laughs> that's better. <laughs> yeah. For us. Well, and and your I think your instincts are right. I think the transparency is important, and and so is convenience. And figuring out the connection between transparency and and convenience, I think, is the the struggle. And you know, most financial institutions don't make it easy. I will say, I think credit unions are doing a heck of a job around the country to make it easier for parents and kids to have access to cash and, and money and really see things. And their fees are, you know, because they're nonprofits, their fees are almost always younger as well. So that's a great, I mean, smaller. That's yeah. a great resource for us. One thing um, I wanted to mention was one, I've talked with kids like fifth grade to eighth grade and their biggest frustration as a child is when their parents and I don't I never do this because I remember going through this when their parents borrow money from them. Oh my god! And, yeah. And then the story that the kids tell me is, "Oh, my parents never really pay me back," or you know, they all right. of a sudden they have this money and then they just feel totally disempowered. So, isn't the boundaries both ways? Like, not only just the boundaries that, that we as parents need to have for our children, but we also need to respect their boundaries, wouldn't you say? Uh, you know, this is obviously just a signal that you've got parents who are out of control of their own financial habits because, I mean, the role modeling they're not doing there is so profound and it raises such anxiety, and you're right, anger in those kids 
that it's going to disrupt the relationships in those families for a very long time. I mean, it's trust issues, it's uh, admiration, it's all of those things that get interrupted when a parent is acting inappropriately with children. And, you know, I understand, we all understand families get in these really ugly financial situations, particularly if somebody's suddenly out of a job or there's something wrong with a house. And, you know, I get how life can be pretty desperate from time to time. And it's why it's more important than ever that families talk about money and think about how, what are we going to do if things get bad? How do we pull together? But it is not sort of turning to children and relying on them as the safety net because that just kind of turns everything on the on the head and makes it very dangerous. Or, um, or even the ATM of, oh, this is just a little bit mm-hmm. more convenient, and then they forget to pay them back, right? right? Because then now, and what's right. the message being sent to the kid? Exactly. So. And, 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 you know, it, it has everything to do with trust issues that take years to rebuild. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I remember um, post-2008, 2009, I was meeting with kids in schools around the country. And the number of times I would have a, a teenager say to me, well, you know, I'm worried that my parents don't know enough about investing and what can I tell them? And I think, oh my goodness, I've got this 16-year-old trying to teach their parents. And, you know, your heart just goes out because you know that children don't miss a trick. And they're aware when there's difficulty in the family. And so really all I want to say is when you're feeling tension or when you're uneasy because things are not going well financially in a household, you've got to talk to kids about it. And it doesn't mean putting the responsibility on their shoulders, but you do have to help them understand, here's the issue, here's where, how we're dealing with it, you're going to be okay, we're not going to make you worry about solving our problems. Um, but that is an issue in a lot of families. Who becomes the kid? Mm-hmm. So two takeaways from the listeners um, or uh, to implement with their kids. Oh, my. Um, well, one of them is the allowance as uh, moving. I guess one takeaway is moving the invisible allowance you're already giving to a visible allowance mm. that shows income and outgo. So that is to, you know, today's allowances for the most part have been spending plans. Here's some money. You just pay for what you want. That is not an allowance. It's just moving money from their pocket, from your pocket to theirs. So shifting the invisible to the visible and making it an income statement is takeaway one. Um, I guess takeaway two that I would want to give is this business of um, the conversation that Whatever you think your kids do or don't know, you need to test because today's kids know a lot. I mean, one of the things I'm always struck by is how often children use Zillow among their classmates. So they know the price of their classmates' house. And, I mean, honestly, they now have information to data that you can't imagine they know. And the extractions they make from that data are just insane. So if, you know, you bought a, a house for $50,000 25 years ago and it's worth $2 million now, you know, those kids are going to say, oh, my God, we are so rich, or my friends are so rich, or whatever. The only way that you can counter children's fantasies about money is to be having real conversations with them. And so the family conversation becomes, I think, something core to what it means to be a family. Um, so that would be my other takeaway, I guess. Okay. Well, Jolene, thank you for being a guest today. Well, I'm sorry that I just met her most on because you, I can do that. I care about this topic, and thank you for having me. You did not matter most on. Jo- <laughs> <laughs> Today's guest was Jolene Godfrey, and her book is Raising Financially Fit Kids. I will have links to her website and her book on the show notes for um, after this interview. Thanks for joining us at How She Really Does It. Each week, I try to bring inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment for you. Each show has a takeaway, something you can implement to take those steps forward in your own journey. I'd love to hear from you. You can connect with me at my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com. 
and sign up for my weekly newsletter to get insider information as well as each podcast delivered directly into your inbox. Have a great day and I'm smiling big for you. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming, she is drifting. Never been so wide awake. Captured in